This radio program is PG-13. Parents strongly caution some material may be inappropriate for children under the age of 13. Set me free. Jesus' mission was to comfort those who mourn, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives, and open prison doors for those who are bound. For those who want more than status quo Christianity has to offer, Blazing Grace Radio begins now. And here is your host, Mike Janung. Hey, Mike Janung here, and welcome back to Blazing Grace Radio. Glad to have you along. About a month ago, we had Olivia on the program, and she shared her story, and I've invited her back to pick up some of the conversation, and she has led prayer calls for us for wives about eight years ago. Olivia is passionate about helping women and girls who are suffering from the trauma of sex addiction in the family. She is a board-certified holistic nutritionist, and she works with children and young adult survivors of sex trafficking And Olivia and her husband have a blended family with nine children and two chickens. And Olivia, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me back, Mike. So before we get into it, how do you manage nine kids and two chickens? (laughs) Well, um, actually, I have one homesick today. But um, we have some of them are older. We have a a few that have graduated from high school, three. Um, and we have one in high school currently, and then they kind of trickle down to uh, pre-kindergarten is our youngest. So um, just a lot of prayer, you know, and um, a lot of therapy. <laughs> That's how we, pretty much how we manage. Yeah, that just sounds like you're quite busy with that alone, let alone jobs. Yeah, yeah, it, and actually um, I left. I was working full-time, but I left that um, last October to be home with. Um, we have a daughter who has um, some different struggles, and she needed a little bit more time and attention and care. And so I decided, I made that decision so um, I can be there for her and support her a little bit more. And and so, yeah, we just take it day by day. We love our kiddos, and we love our life. So. Mm. Well, it sounds like you have your priorities straight, and that's great. Mm. So I want to start by talking about fathers. And you had shared in your story how your dad was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Talk about what kind of impact it would have had on you if you had a dad that took you out on dates and told you I love you often and hugged you often and affirmed you often. Talk about what that would have meant to your life? Um, well, I wouldn't say that my dad was uh, unkind or cruel to me. When he did see me, he was a very kind, affectionate father to me, and he praised me. He was very positive with me. But the problem was his addiction, that was always his priority. And so it caused him to be physically absent a lot. And um, my mom struggled with some issues of her own that caused her to be a little bit paranoid 
about me having a relationship with him. So at one point, she actually moved me from my home state four states away and didn't even tell him. And so I didn't have contact with him for several years, just completely zero contact. But I think that if if he hadn't been tied to that addiction and he had been a more present father, I think that my entire life would look different. And um, I think that it's kind of, there's this weird phenomenon we see in, uh, I work with um, at-risk youth a lot, kids in the foster system and things like that. And there's this weird thing that we can't really explain. And it's that some kids just have a little bit more resiliency than other kids do. And so the same type of trauma will impact two kids differently, even if they are from the same home, have the same, have had the same parents, the same life experiences and whatnot. And I think I was just one of those kids that was kind of born with a little bit more resiliency. And so I can only imagine how much better my life would have been. I, you know, I've held on tight. um, And I think that my life would have turned out a lot differently. And I likely wouldn't have made the choice of my first husband. Um, And they say, you know, you kind of marry, if you grow up in a dysfunctional family and you have like a toxic relationship with a parent or they're abusive, you kind of marry that abuser. And I think that that's exactly what I did. It took me being on the other side of that and having some healing and recovery to see the similarities there uh, with my ex-husband and my mom, actually. Um, But you know how it is. Girls and dads and boys and moms, there's just, there's an attachment that needs to happen there to really have good, deep health that sustains you through life. And unfortunately, I didn't have that opportunity, you know, with my dad. So Mm. some years ago, I was speaking at a church at a men's conference, and I asked the men to raise their hands if they had grown up with a close relationship with their dad and not one hand went up, mm-hmm. which shocked, yeah. shocked me. So how is it that men have been in the church for decades? How, why is it? I mean, this is a big question, but what have we lost or what are we missing that we're not equipping men to be fathers? I have no idea. I, I, I kind of feel like, this is like such a funny school answer, but if we go back to the garden with Adam and Eve, I think about this a lot, actually, because we, we read there about the curse that was put on each for their choice, their sin choice. Um, and I, I feel like just watching and learning about history and war and the trauma that our men historically have experienced that war, and then they bring that trauma back home and no one was really equipped to deal with it. And I know it goes back before that, but I can see it literally from the beginning of time. You see all this trauma that the enemy is imposing and inflicting on our men. And it it's definitely eating away at society and at, you know, the family is his target. And But if you can take down a man, you can take down the whole family and they're, therefore really all of society. You know, that's what it revolves around. And so... Um, you're right. I think the enemy and his schemes are really um, cunning and um, divisive, and he knows exactly where to make the blows that are the most impactful, and it's it's with our men. Mm. And then when you add on top of that that 
you know, surveys are showing that 60 to 70 percent of U.S. Christian men are viewing pornography. That's that's a killer mm-hmm. of the soul right then and there, as you mm-hmm. experienced with your first husband, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's it's happening, I feel like, younger and younger. Um, I remember when I have an older son, and I remember the first time he was exposed to <clears throat> pornography was someone in our neighborhood had, he was about probably eight at the time, and someone in our neighborhood had apparently thrown away, burned, I don't know how this happened, um, exorbitant amounts of um, printed pornography. And there were tiny pieces of it all over the neighborhood. I do not know how this happened. And so my, my son, walking home from the, the bus stop one day, found some and he picked it up and he brought it home. Mm. And he had never seen anything like that before, so obviously he was very confused. And he had it, and he brought it to me, and he was like, Mom, what is this? What is this woman doing? He was just very confused, and um, my heart just sunk. How I didn't just burst into tears in that moment. It was the Holy Spirit holding me together. Um, But that was his first exposure, and I know that once you see those things, you can't really unsee them, you know? And um, I think that that's how the enemy works, even through silly things like someone throwing away a bunch of chopped up pieces of, of printed pornography. And um, it's a really, it's, it's really an epidemic in our society all over the entire world, as you know, because you just traveled. <laughs> mm. Well, what I like what, what you just shared was he came home and he shared it with you. Mm-hmm. which speaks volumes about his relationship with you and that he can trust you and he can show you things like that. And unfortunately, we see there are many parents where they're very hard and the kids are terrified of right. showing things like that to them. And speak mm-hmm. to that, how critical an open relationship is with our kids on these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that for me... Um, I'm kind of on the extreme end of it. I use proper anatomical terminology with my kids. Um, I work with abuse survivors. And so you read statistics and hear stories about things. And to me, talking about it takes the power away from it. And I know you've had guests on your show that talk about how in the church we don't talk about sex enough and we don't talk about pornography enough, we don't talk about sex addiction enough, if any at all. And um, so for me, my kind of strategy with my kids is I'm going to give them more information than they even want. (laughs) And so um, we've had, and also I was a nurse, and so I can come at it from that standpoint too, but we've done, you know, the Good Pictures, Bad Pictures book, and we've talked about pornography and seeing things that scare you and how some people use their bodies in ways that aren't holy and things like that. But I've also um, shown my children, once they reach an appropriate age, pictures of what um, STDs look like mm. on you and how you get that. And and we talk about periods and we talk about sex and we talk about all the things that are have kind of um, been really for a very long time faux pas to talk about in a Christian home. And I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so maybe that's partially why I don't shy away from it. But I think it's so, so important because the more comfortable you 
talk, you, you get talking about something, you feel more comfortable talking about that thing. And so my kids have been really open with me with their struggles. And I have two in college now and we have a pretty open relationship and I'm usually the one that they come to first when they have issues. And that's what we all want as parents. You know, we want our kids to come to us because we don't want them to get that education from the world or the internet or whatever it might be. So I think it's so important to talk about it and it's uncomfortable for a lot of people. I I have friends who are like, I just can't, you know, they have all these cutesy names for body parts and stuff. They're they're just so, uh, they, it's awkward. And I just tell them like, you just fake it till you make it because the kids don't really know the difference. You know, like they can't tell that mom is really uncomfortable having this discussion with me right now or dad or, you know, if it's a single parent home situation, that can be even more awkward. Um, I know with my oldest son, I read the uh, Every Young Man's Battle book with him, and that was really awkward for him and for me, but I wanted any hope for him that I could grasp onto. I wanted to try and prevent that sin from his father to falling onto him. And, um, and so it was really awkward, but it is so, so important if we want to save our kids from walking through those pains. Mm-hmm. Olivia, a lot of surveys are showing that kids as young as age six are getting smartphones. What is your take on that? Oh, I'm a very conservative when it comes to smartphones. Um, my kids will not get smartphones until they're probably 18 or they are 16 and they require it for GPS and I can't find a TomTom on eBay because <laughs> smartphones have been so, so bad. Um, when I worked in residential care with youth, they were not allowed to have smartphones there and you would have thought it was a death sentence. And they would go through a time. That was one of the agreements to come into our program, which was an amazing program. But that was one of the tenets that they had to agree to, that they would surrender their smartphone. And you would think they were detoxing from a hard drug. It was rough. And um, and after they graduated from the program, they would get their smartphone back. But to see kids have to detox from an electronic like that, it's, you know, and in, in it's, you know, it's terrible. And, um, for, for my kids, when I got divorced, my oldest daughter was a junior in high school and, um, their dad bought them a smartphone, even though it was a house rule that we had together prior to our divorce that they would not get smartphones. And, um, he bought her one and she felt horrible because she felt the pressure because dad is, you know, she's in my home. She lived with me. Um, and it was really horrible to see her be torn in that way. And so I started researching different options for monitoring and for parental controls. And those things are out there because some parents, they just feel like there's absolutely no way my kid is going to carry around a basic phone. And then there's also, um, some other phone companies that make phones that look like smartphones, but they're actually not. And I think that's really smart too. Um, I think Blab is one of them or Gab. Gab phone is one of those. And, um, but there are a lot of monitoring apps and, um, but even still we've found when I worked with traffic kids, um, predators would communicate through the Bible app. 
mm. the Bible app. And because if there is a chat feature, they will find it and they will use it. YouTube has a chat feature. And whenever um, I worked in residential care, there were our some of our youth were communicating through the smart TV um, on the YouTube app. And I was like, goodness, if there is a will, there is a way. And so for me personally, my personal preference would be that my kids don't get smartphones um, until they're practically adults. But um, if I if I had to do something, I would make sure it was very tightly monitored. And also, so a lot of my friends or my children's friends have smartphones, right? And they come over. And so what I've kind of... Um, executed and it has been pretty successful so far is we have a docking station in a common area and so when they come over they'll put their phones in the docking station there's a charger there and everything and they can go back and forth to that docking station as many times they can stand there and be on their phone the whole time they're over at our home but that phone stays there as long as they're here and what I've found is it's crazy because they'll kind of bucket at first and be like, ah, you know, but they're in someone else's home, so they are going to respect the rules. And they engage each other so much more. Mm. And that just plays into it even more because we know the opposite of, di- of addiction isn't sobriety. It's community. It's togetherness. And, um, and so to see them connecting face-to-face because teenagers, I swear, don't know how to be social anymore. But to see him connecting face to face, it's so it's so much healthier. It's a huge difference than when they're at another person's home and they're literally sitting on the sofa next to each other with their faces in their phones and not not talking to each other whatsoever. So that's my personal take on phones and obviously the the access to porn, to have it right in the palm of your hand, it's just it's too much for these kids. They're not ready for that. So that's that's kind of my rule and my take. Yeah, and isn't that the bottom line that a seven or an eight year old, even a ten year old or plus, does not have the emotional maturity to handle a device with a wide open internet access? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no way. Nothing will ever convince me of that. So when we when we talked in the first show, you said something that I loved. You talked about how when you were dating. Your soon-to-be second husband, you told him right out of the gate, um, no porn, no masturbation, no messing around. And I love that. And I have three daughters, and I've told them from the beginning, when you start dating a guy, you don't ask him if. It's not a matter of if anymore. It's when and how how long it's been. Right, right. So talk about that boundary and how critical that is for young women to understand. Yeah, I think that um, as a society, it's already hard enough because porn is just so widely accepted. And I don't think that they understand that um, it's the gateway and it always escalates. Um, And so where I was going with that with my current husband was that coming from a place of understanding that even in the church, People are having premarital sex. People are using pornography and talking about it openly with other believers. And it's it's the thing that's just kind of known and accepted. And I I needed him to know that for me it was not acceptable. And 
I think that it's already it's already a big enough struggle when you've had previous partners because those um, those soul ties are there to that person because that's not design, right? We're supposed to, you know, meet our meet our future spouse, wait till marriage, then, you know, enter into covenant and then have sex. And that's just not the way really hardly anyone does it anymore. It's pretty rare to find even young college kids, even older high schoolers in the church who are still virgins. And I think that for them, it's kind of strange to not have dabbled, not have masturbated, not have dabbled in porn, not have had some kind of sexual encounter or interaction. And, um, but for me, I've walked through the pain that comes from sexual immorality. And I think I've always kind of wondered why in scripture there are two biblical justifications for divorce, and one of them is adultery. And I've always thought, well, so many people cheat, and then they just forgive each other and repent and move on or whatever, right? And But then I, as I learned more about sexual addiction and the impact it has on the brain and on relationships, I, I came to realize that it wounds you so, so deeply to be betrayed in that way. And that's why I mentioned I did uh, that counseling intensive with Marsha Mean. And what I loved about it so much was that it, it came at it from the angle of trauma rather than a codependency. And in her workbook, she likens <clears throat> your spouse telling you they acted out again to being raped. There were studies done, brain scans done, and the places that light up in the brain when a person responds to sharing about their sexual assault, those are the same areas that are lit up when uh, a spouse is told that their spouse acted out again or their spouse uh, committed adultery again or for the first time or whatever it might be. It's trauma. It's traumatizing. And then taking into consideration the fact that we're only really ever meant to know one person like I'm talking about like biblically no and in sex in a Christian marriage is such an incredible thing how we're engaging physically emotionally spiritually and sexually and when you're doing that with yourself or with your computer screen or your tablet or your phone and you're creating those bonds with those things or with yourself which thereby therefore creates a narcissist over time. Like we talked about in the last show about that lack of compassion that develops over time. Mm -hmm. And I personally believe that's where it comes from because there you're bonding through masturbation, self-sex, you're bonding with yourself over and over and over and over again. And there are things that happen in the brain that are just, they're not meant for that. They're meant for connectivity with your spouse. And I was not willing to share that. And I was not willing to tolerate that. And I was not willing to experience that type of pain ever again. And so I wanted to be very upfront with my current husband, knowing what the, you know, the status quo or the social norm is now for those types of things. Like really, even on my, um, the Christian blogs and, and things that I read, they just say, well, if a boy's masturbating, just tell him it's okay, it's normal, 
and but but it's not it's really damaging and so it, it's a tricky conversation to have but to me masturbation is self-sex and i'm not willing to share my spouse to be having sex with anyone else including himself and i don't think that young women realize the devastation that that has on a man and on their future relationship mm-hmm. and i think probably the only way for them to learn that is for their moms and dads to talk to them about that. Olivia, I've loved everything you had to say, and I think that what you've shared needs to be really in front of churches, in front of parents and teens. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again, Mike. Well, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Do you want to be free? Blazing Grace is a nonprofit international ministry for the sexually broken and the spouse. Please visit us at blazinggrace.org for information on Mike Janung's books, groups, counseling, or to have Mike speak at your organization. You can email us at email at blazinggrace.org or call our office in Chandler, Arizona at 719-888-5144. Again, visit us at blazinggrace.org. Email us at email at blazinggrace.org or call the office at 719-888-5144.